Good morning again. We are continuing in our series in Mark. If you've been following with us, you know we've entered really the last act. We've entered, Jesus was arrested in the passage we looked at last week, and here he goes to trial. And one thing that's helpful to remember about uh, the gospel, about Christianity in general, is that these gospel stories, uh, the gospel, all four of the gospels that we have, take a long time through Jesus' arrest and his trial and his death. And so this, when we summarize the gospel as being about the cross, it's actually the narrative shape of each of these gospels is there's so much going on that is focused around his trial and his death. And uh, so there, this is going to take us several weeks to get through all that. Um, but, of course, it is well worth our time. So we'll pick up in Mark 14 at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony they did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You know, we always say, Thanks be to God at the end of all these passages, because this is God's Word, and there is everything we need to learn in it. But it is sometimes hard in the middle of these narratives to feel like, boy, I want to say thanks be to God for that. But as we said, this is God's Word, and it has everything that we need in it. So let's pray that He would illuminate it for us. Father, we thank You that You speak to us, even in our weakness even in our confusion, and especially in our sin. So we pray that you would illuminate the word, illuminate what, you have, what Jesus has done, what you have given to us by your apostles, by that same spirit that inspired them. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of my favorite contemporary authors is Marilyn Robinson. I don't know if you're familiar with her novels, but... A, Several of them are set in this town uh, called Gilead, Iowa. 
And the, the first of the novels is the most well-known. Uh, it won all these awards. It's called Gilead. And it is, it's written around, in, it's set as being written in the 1950s as a memoir of an old minister named John Ames. Uh, but of course, he's telling the story of his life, and so it goes back <laughs> earlier than that. And two of the characters that show up a lot are his father and his grandfather, who were also ministers. As a son of a minister and a minister, I can tell you that means there's obviously a lot of dysfunction going on. Um, and that becomes crystal clear uh, along the way. But at, at one point, uh, there is kind of a showdown of sorts between the father and the grandfather. This is when John was, a young, was young, so it's probably the late 1800s. And you've discovered along the way that his father is a pacifist, but his grandfather had been an ardent abolitionist. But more than that, had actually been uh, part of John Brown's revolt. I don't know if you remember that story in American history. But this is how uh, John remembers it in his memory. His father says this to his grandfather. He says, I remember when you walked to the pulpit in that shot up blood shirt with that pistol in your belt. And I had a thought as powerful and clear as any revelation. It was, this has nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing, nothing. It's a powerful moment because it's a family moment. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, it's a powerful moment because it has everything to do with the question of what the church is supposed to be. It has a powerful moment because it has everything to do with what Jesus is about. And, that, and, in, and in fact, his, his grandfather had been caught up in a classic illustration of an idea run amok, right? A righteous cause. Abolition mercilessly executed. I'm not going to go into the whole history of John Brown's revolt. You can read about that if you want. But it brings together one of the classic problems we have. The conflict of truth. Things that we know are true and believe are true. And other things that we don't want to recognize as being true. It brings together questions of what we value most. I'm not saying there were easy answers for either the grandfather or the father in that story, or even for John himself in that story. But it is a way of recognizing that this is a classic problem. It is a problem now in our culture, right? We are caught uh, believing some things are true and feeling like that crowds out other things that we believe are true. We are told to value certain things and not value other things. This is true within the church, right? We live in the dying days of the old Christendom arrangement. By Christendom, I mean that belief that the church and society just sort of fit together neatly, easily. That to be a Christian and to be, in our case, a good American are just an easy match. And it is increasingly seeming like that is not the case anymore. And in fact, it begs the question, was it actually as cozy ever as we thought it was? When Messiah shows up, 
he brings this kind of conflict to a head. And what we see is the conflict that, that really comes to a head here between Jesus and the religious authorities is a conflict of truth and a conflict of value. Conflict of truth and a conflict of value. First, the conflict of truth. Jesus is brought in to the court of the high priest. So I don't need to tell you the high priest is an important position in Israel. Uh, it was not merely a religious functionary, though it was certainly that. Uh, he would head up the whole council that oversaw Israel, this, what's called the Sanhedrin. Uh, that's who they have assembled, or at least part of, they've assembled enough people in the middle of the night uh, to be able to kind of hold a council here. Um, some have questioned whether they really got everybody that they needed. They got a quorum of everybody that obviously saw it their way. So it's a bit of a kangaroo court, it feels like, isn't it? Uh, so, and this guy's name was Caiaphas. Mark doesn't actually name him, but we know it from the other Gospels. We know it even from the Jewish sources that are outside of the Bible. And they start to bring together all these false witnesses, all these people who are making claims about what Jesus has done. This is verses 55, 56. But even they can't seem to agree. And what they're doing, you, we recognize this if you've been following along, what they're doing is they're looking for a reason to hand Jesus over to the Romans to be executed. They, but we already know that they've decided that's what they want to do. We know that back from chapter 12, uh, verse 12. It was, we're told pretty explicitly that's their intention. So they're not really, this isn't a kind of objective look at the facts, right? This, they already know what they want to do. They are looking for a reason to justify it. They're not, you might say, you know, searching out for truth. And even, even there is this point in verses 57 and 58 where they bring up something Jesus actually said. Uh, when, they, when they bring up the stuff about him destroying the temple and rebuilding it. Now, in, Mar in Mark and as well as in Matthew, they bring this up and it's the first time we hear about it. Uh, however, we do read in John 2, verse 19, Jesus says something like this. There he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So we do know Jesus said something like this. Uh, now John goes on to uh, kind of editorialize and comment that Jesus was talking about his body. And the reason this is uh, considered a false testimony witness is not so much because it wasn't talking about, you know, Jesus said something like this, but they clearly don't understand it, right? This is just kind of bringing up facts as if they're obvious what's going on, and, and it seems that even they couldn't agree on what Jesus was actually talking about. I mean, I think Jesus was probably being intentionally cryptic at that moment, uh, that it would take his resurrection to show them what he really meant, so they can't even agree on that. And of course, the obvious, you know, it's obvious what their intentions are by the end of this story in verse 65 when they are simply mocking him after they decide to hand him over. But the problem with the, the question of truth goes deeper here. This is important to see. That there's actually a conflict here between two high priests. There is Caiaphas, on the one hand, who holds the official title of being high priest, who's been, you know, 
elect, selected in the you know, proper ways and all that sort of thing. But then, of course, there's the person who actually took over the temple just a few days before this. After he rode into Jerusalem. There's Jesus. And what we have then is a very different viewpoint on what it means to be the high priest. What is going on here is is the playing out of what we've seen all along since Jesus got to Jerusalem. All through chapters 11 and 12 and 13, Jesus challenging the religious leaders. And what they cannot take, what they cannot accept, is that he upends the narrative that they have about themselves. See, telling the truth about something is not merely assembling the facts. I'm not, of course, it includes all the facts, right? But it means in how you weave them together into a truthful narrative. Right? Where it, 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 there was a, there's an old line from uh, T.S. Eliot, right? <laughs> Where is the knowledge in information? Where is the wisdom in our knowledge? So truthfulness is not merely that they have the facts. They seem to have collected some of them. They don't seem to be able to get them all together into a coherent narrative. But uh, they are most offended by the fact that Jesus is upending the whole story that they understand that they're living out. The story about their place in the world. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? Because isn't that us? We have our own nice narratives about ourselves, who we are, about the way the world works, about who God is. They're usually kind of simplistic and cheap, though. And this is, not a, this is not a new problem. This is not merely a problem with these high priests. This goes back to the very beginning. This goes back to Genesis 3. This goes back to the Garden of Eden. And beginning to convince ourselves that we can see ourselves some, in a different way than God sees us. That we can make of the world something that we want to make. And that maybe God is in all that he cracks up to be. I mean, what is it we tell ourselves about ourselves? That we are the masters of our own fate. Look, I mean, if you grow up in a traditional culture, this means conforming to the things that are expected of you. If you grow up in a more modern, progressive culture, it is about striking out on your own path. I know that we're some kind of mix of all those things, but you know, those are, the, those are the two kind of narratives. But either way, right, either way, we're saying what matters is what you make of your life. In the burden, whether that's conformity or originality, is on you. The burden of your value as a person is on you. What about the world? The way of the world. We tell ourselves, and again, we can do this in a more traditional vein or we can do this in a more progressive vein. We tell ourselves that what is most important is getting in and getting ahead. 
right? When you're, the younger you are, the more you're thinking about getting it in, <laughs> right? Getting into a program, getting into the right school, getting into the right career, getting a foot in the door with that next job, right? And then, we th- then we're thinking about getting ahead. And look, even if you are stay at home, oh, getting ahead is what the game's all about, right? So, look, we think about that, or maybe sometimes we get to the point where all we can think about is just getting by. But we don't feel like we can get ahead or can't get in. Either way, we, our eyes are fixed on the horizon of what we're doing in this 80 years that we're given, 100 years that we're given, however long. We were focused on the bottom line of our bank account. We are focused on the recognition that others give us. You know, the way that the book of Ecclesiastes describes this is, this is a way of living as if all that we have is what's under the sun. That's the way we think about the world, right? It's about getting in or getting ahead or perhaps just getting by. And we think about God, if we think about him at all, that if he's there, he's not very involved. Or perhaps if he is, he can't be trusted. Which, of course, proves that we are still right back in that territory of Genesis 3. And that old lie, as the storybook Bible puts it, that God doesn't really love you. And, of course, the less we think God is involved, the more we can reinterpret the world, right? The more freedom we have to make of the world what we want. That uncanny ability to convince ourselves of so many things. George Costanza in Seinfeld summarized it well, right? It's not a lie if you believe it. Or famously, Stephen Colbert in his old show, The Colbert Report, opened with the idea of truthiness, right? Something that really seems like it should be true, right? So it must be true. We are able to reinterpret our world so much, but this is where God's word comes in. It is one of the useful things about God's word is that it teaches us John Calvin called it spectacles by which we saw the world. Because our own vision is blurry, and it is blurred by our kind of media that we consume, social media maybe being the worst of it. It is, it is blurred by the assumed trajectories that we think the world is on, whether that's a trajectory of progress or decline. Our vision is blurred by the things that we want to be true about ourselves, about the world, about God. But instead of those cheap, simplistic answers, what the Bible gives us is something very different. It tells you that you are made in God's image and inherently valuable because of that. Though that image is shattered, is cracked, is broken. 
And that teaches us to see ourselves not merely as those who can accomplish things. It, it, it teaches us to see that, yes, of course, people have amazing capacity to do amazing things, and yet also to expect the worst kind of depravity to come out of our hearts, left to themselves. That's not a simplistic answer about who we are. That is the stuff of real life. And the Bible teaches us that the world is not merely what we want it to be. It is not a place where we can just set our own agenda, but it is a place that was made good and made for good. More than that, made for God's glory. But we have marred it. And in fact, the more that we understand the world to be our just the mere scope of our horizon, the more lost we will be within it. Holding on to our hopes of what we can get into and how we can get ahead and how we can just get by. But rather, and again, this is another term from Calvin, it is a theater for God's glory. The story that's being played out in the world is important. But its goals are well beyond merely the stage itself. In a course about God, it tells us a very different story. It tells us that God cares deeply, intimately, that he is a good and gracious father. That we have abandoned, but who has not abandoned us. And yet at the same time is also righteous and holy and just. And the proof of that is not merely in some abstraction. It is not merely in some distant reality. It is in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Which gets us to the question of the conflict of values. Because everything hinges on when the high priest speaks up. Obviously his frustration has been building, hasn't it? Jesus is doing, we we mentioned last week Isaiah 53 and how Jesus' mind seems to be focused on that as uh, the template of the suffering servant. And one of the things the suffering servant does is suffer silently. And this is what Jesus does as they're telling lies about him, misconstruing his words, doing all these other things. He sits there silently and the high priest cannot take it anymore, right? He starts yelling at, aren't you going to answer? And in verse 61, he asks, he gets to the heart of the matter. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Now, this is important to see. He is going for the thing that they need, the information that they need. Because if they are going to hand him over to the Romans to execute him, they can't execute him. They need a capital offense, right? So he is trying to trap him into this question, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, because everybody knows that that has political implications. In other words, if he confesses to that, then they can bring him, and this is what they will do, up on the charge of challenging Rome's authority, trying to set himself up as king against Rome. But it's a funny turn of phrase he uses. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? This is a Well, the fancy word is this is a circumlocution. 
This is, this is a way of talking about God without actually naming him. And uh, in effect, Judaism by this time, and uh, this certainly continues afterwards, is full of circumlocutions when it comes to God. Uh, ways of talking about God without naming him. So are you the Christ, the Son of God? Now what he means by that, and a lot of modern commentators are quick to point this out, that the Son of God was a name for the Messiah, but that is not used in the way in which later Christians come to understand it. They didn't think of that meaning that Jesus would, or whoever the Messiah was, would be fully divine, but that he was, he was like Psalm 2 talks about, the one who ruled like a son of God, as if he was a son of God. So he's bringing up this question, but Jesus' answer is pointed. He says, I am. Now, many of the modern commentators think that that's just giving a straightforward answer. But some of the older commentators point out, and I think they're on to something, what is God's name? The, one, the name that Caiaphas just avoided saying, it is I am. But if that's not enough, he goes on. You know, perhaps they weren't sure what to make of that. Did Jesus just cross a line? I don't know. He goes on. This is verse 62. You will see the Son of Man, so that's obviously Jesus, that's a title he uses about himself, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now what Jesus does here, like we've seen him do on other occasions, he is weaving together a couple of Old Testament references together. One of them is from Psalm 110, verse 1. And Jesus has actually already mentioned this a few chapters back. Uh, Back at the end of chapter 12, Jesus mentions this line that opens Psalm 110, where it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make the nations your footstool. And we noticed when when we talked about that passage that Jesus explicitly was going after this question of his divinity, even though nobody understood what he was talking about. That Jesus was going after this question of his divinity. That the Messiah would be greater than David. Honored by God in a unique way. And then he is also referencing Psalm, or I'm sorry, not Psalm, Daniel 7. Now, the whole idea of the Son of Man comes probably from Daniel 7. That phrase, though, is used other places throughout the Old Testament. So when Jesus has been using this term about himself, the Son of Man, it is a bit ambiguous. Where does it come? You know, it, it's met, that's a term used in a few different places. It could mean different things. But Daniel 7 mentions that with the, it is a vision of these different beasts. It's another apocalyptic thing. It's hard. I can't summarize the whole thing for, for you here. But there is, you know, a vision of the Ancient of Days, who's obviously God, uh, who shows up on Judgment Day. And then we're told, behold, this is Daniel 7, verse 13. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. It goes on. You hear that, with the, riding with the clouds. And the cloud is always a, a symbol in the Old Testament of God's glory. 
When God came down on Mount Sinai, it was wrapped in cloud. When he went before the people in the desert, it was a pillar of fire surrounded by cloud, right? So the fire shone at night and this pillar of cloud and smoke. It's the same thing in Hebrew. Is leading them through the desert. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, when God's glory shows up, there is always this cloud that surrounds it. So the one riding on the clouds is riding on the very glory of God. Not to put it (laughs) too bluntly. So, and and Daniel 7 itself was interpreted a bunch of different ways by, uh, by the ancient Jewish sources. It wasn't clearly a messianic passage. Partly because people were uncomfortable with how closely associated this son of man character is with God himself. But Jesus is making it plain, and where all this is adding up to, I know if that might seem like a lot of different rabbit trails here, uh, to a few different passages, is that Jesus is saying, I am Messiah, absolutely. I will reign with God, and moreover, as God. Uh, (laughs) Reigning, riding on top of his glory. Does that make sense? It is all adding up to exactly what Caiaphas realizes Jesus is doing. He's saying he's God. He's saying he has divine authority. I mean, no wonder he flips out, right? And what he said, he got what he wanted, but he also got what he needed to animate the whole Sanhedrin. Even if it hadn't been a kangaroo court, it almost certainly would have still gone his way. If they had had the full Sanhedrin there, everybody would have backed it and said, we know what that means, and this guy does not deserve to live. He's blasphemed God. Caiaphas, and this is important, and the rest of the Sanhedrin with him, think that they're valuing God's glory. But instead, they're refusing it. And it's both understandable, but telling. It's telling because what they have refused to see all along is that Jesus does and says only things God can do and say. All along, Jesus has been making plain his divine character. But they haven't wanted to recognize it. They've asked him for signs, even though he's just done signs that were the sorts of things only God can do and say. They asked him for signs because they just don't want to accept it for what it is. And again, it's understandable from their standpoint. It does blow their categories apart. But that's the point. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin And this is where it's also clear, you and I think we have God figured out. Even if you've been in the church, maybe even especially if you've been in the church your whole life, we think we know exactly who God is. We think we've got it kind of figured out. But when Jesus shows up, he challenges what we value. This is really a question of worship, 
I mean, he, Jesus has just told them, you're going to end up worshiping me. I mean, that was a clear subtext of all that, is you're going to end up worshiping me. That's what the word worship actually means. The, the etymology of it is worth-ship, was something value, worth valuing, celebrating the worth of it. And it is what motivates us. And this is how it's connected to the truth. This is an important part of it, is we are always motivated believers. We're always motivated by what we love, by what we value. To find what confirms that and to try to screen out what doesn't. Uh, the moral philosopher, uh, or moral psychologist, I'm sorry, uh, Jonathan Haidt, in his really fascinating book, The Righteous Mind, puts it this way. He says, intuition comes first, strategic reasoning second. What he means is our gut, the things that we value, come first. And then we go looking for reasons to justify seeing it that way. And this is how we go through life, isn't it? I mean, this last year, whether it's stuff with the pandemic, whether it's politics, whether it's just your family life, and figuring out this, right, this is always the case, right? What you value comes first, and then we go seeking the evidence to confirm it. That doesn't mean you were always wrong. But, you know, over and over and over again, we've seen this, right? We, we respond based on what we value and the way we want to see the world. And then we go looking for evidence to prove it. This is how it works. This is what we do. And there are obvious ways in which we love things that we shouldn't love, right? That are obviously sinful. And we convince ourselves, well, it's okay. If I tell that little white lie, because it's for something that's good, right? We're not really honest about what's motivating ourselves a lot of the time, but we instead convince ourselves that it's some good end. We want to be comfortable. We want control. We want approval. And so we convince ourselves this is okay. Maybe we convince ourselves that our sexual behavior is okay. Maybe we convince ourselves that our anger is okay because it's righteous. Careful. But we also, of course, go after things that aren't in and of themselves sinful, but become idols for us. And we've been talking about some of them already, right? Career. Family can be an idol, right? It can take an inordinate place of value in our lives where it starts to become the thing that we judge our value based off of. Because here's the deal. The more we understand who God is, the more we realize that his value is not in rubber stamping our lives, but is in who he is in and of himself. I mean, this should be true, obviously, on the surface of it, right? If there is one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, like those who are going through the communicants class know what I'm talking about. 
We should value that, right? Like, that's obvious. If there really is somebody like that, of course that should be the most valuable thing in our lives. But valuing God is not merely valuing him in the abstract. It is valuing him. It is assessing who he is based on what he has done. It is based on the gospel. Because it is in the gospel that we see who God really is. It's in the gospel that we see his character unpacked. It is in the gospel that the good and gracious, loving God also maintains his holiness and justice, right? It is, by, it is by Jesus entering in. It is by the Son of God taking on flesh and suffering. Not merely suffering like anybody else does, but enduring injustice and shame on the cross. More than that, not merely enduring injustice and shame, but taking on the judgment we deserved, hell itself, and being consumed by death. But not staying that way. It is when he rises up and redeems us, right? So that the power of sin and death is broken. This is where the character of God is shown. This is how we know who the true God is. This is the one who loves us. And the outworking of that is to undo all those myths that we tell ourselves about who we are. Because your value is not based on what you've done. It's based on what Jesus has done. The way that the world works is no longer about getting in and getting ahead or even getting by. It is about the overflow of his love. It is about the resurrection that lies ahead. It is about the renewal of all things. So that when we cynically tell ourselves, well, I've just got to get what I need and get what's good for me and my own, we are buying into a lie because that is no longer the way that the world works. That is a fool's errand. The good news of Jesus tells us who God is. It shows us his value that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the person we want to be with. That's the one we want to love. And that is the kind of love that changes us, that teaches us to be honest about who we are, about the way that the world is, but more importantly and more significantly to be honest about who God is. He is the one who has borne our sins, who has loved us to the end, and whose love does not fail. You want to know what that looks like in practice? There's an awesome series on Netflix called Last Chance You. Now, it is not edited to be family friendly. Just a, just a warning. Uh, but it's, it started with football, and they've done, a, they've done a basketball season that I'm almost done with. And they trace uh, junior college athletes, uh, guys who are, have, definitely have college, you know, big-time college potential, and some of them even professional-level potential. But because of their situation in life, because of the choices they've made, and often both of those things, uh, these guys are in junior college, trying to get it together academically and get it together in their personal lives, right? Um, and the coach, the basketball coach they're following, is this guy named Coach Mosley. And you know from the beginning he's a Christian. And he's praying for them and he's talking about it. Uh, but he says something powerful. I think it's a, near the end of the first episode, if I remember correctly. He says something powerful about these, about these kids, he says, they need love the most 
when they deserve it the least. That's a man who knows the gospel. That's a man who knows what it is to live out the gospel. Who knows what it means to be loved when you didn't deserve it. And so can turn around and love those who deserve it the least. This is the truth of the good news of Jesus. We are seeing it unfold before us in Mark. But it is the good news of him. That is the thing that is so much more valuable than any myth you're trying to hang on to about yourself or about your family or about your career. Because that takes the pressure off of you. Because God has endured it all. And it gives you a real freedom. A freedom to love those who deserve it the least. A freedom from your sin. A freedom from the sins of others. And a joy that can never be taken. Let's pray. Father, we do pray you would give us the joy of the gospel. That you would remind us, not just this morning, but this afternoon, tomorrow, this week, that we are loved not because we deserve it, but because you have loved us. Not in the abstract, but taking what we deserve, being judged in our place, that Jesus has taken everything that we deserved, but more than that, has given us his life, And we have the promise, the assurance by his resurrection that what is better lies ahead. Teach us to value you above all things and put everything else in our lives in perspective. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.